you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sunshine, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. For those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for the jackals. But the, kings, but the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exhort for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Let's pray together. Our Father, we have already prayed as we began and our elder did pray that you be with us in this part of our worship service as we sit and hear you speak to us. Father, we are grateful that your word is true and living and we ask that you may be with us as we hear your word and we pray with the words of Christ that you may sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. We pray for each one present and those joining us via live stream that, O oh God, you be with them and that together you may bless us from your word. We also pray that at the end of the day, may we truly rejoice that we are glad to be in the house of God. These things we ask in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. When we look at life around us, there are so many things that do happen that would throw us off balance. And if you were asked to, to pick a single word to describe life on earth or to describe our society, perhaps the most accurate word will be stress. Or it will be the word pressure. As the young people would say, I'm a pressure. We live in a day marked by pressure in almost every area of our lives. There's pressure at work, pressure at college, there's pressure in the community. There's family pressure. There is pressure from friends. And when you look around, it's like you are being bombarded by pressure. Now in the midst of such pressure, there is something that 
will determine and help you navigate through your life. And it is if your life is invested in the things of God, invested in the work of God, invested in God himself. And if you can reorder your life, reorder your priorities, and focus your priorities on serving God and doing that which pleases God, this is what will help you to not to be tossed to and from as you navigate through the pressures of life. Godly priorities are crucial in a world dotted with pressure. David wrote Psalm 63. He was a king, as we know. And he was a man who knew what it meant to live under pressure. As a king of Israel, he knew the pressures of leadership. But he was also a father, a husband. And he knew the pressure of being a father, the pressure of being a husband. He also knew the pressure of problems around him. During his reign, his own son Absalom led a rebellion against him, trying to throw him out so that he could be king. And during that rebellion, David and some of his followers left the palace running away for their lives. And it is believed that it was during the flight of David running away for his life's sake, running away from the attacks of Absalom, that he wrote Psalm 63. And it was while he was in the wilderness of Judea that he penned these words as I crossed the Jordan River. And as, I, as he navigated in the wilderness, in the barren land, running away from his son, feeling dejected, rejected, and unsure about what tomorrow holds, he penned some 63. And it is one of the most well-known psalms. In fact, it is said that the church fathers had a practice of singing through the psalms on the Lord's Day, and every morning they would start with singing from Psalm 63. Because this psalm shows us the priority of this man after God's own heart. The psalm we've read shows us that David's priority was thirsting for God. And thirsting after God should be your most important priority in life. 
no matter what pressures come into your life, no matter what it is that seeks to throw you off balance, the only way you'll be able to respond and handle them and maintain a godly balance is if thirsting after God becomes your most important priority. And as we'll be going through this psalm, as I'll be concluding, I'll tie everything and link them to our week of prayer and fasting. Because if you and I do not have this thirst after God or thirsting for God, we will not see why we should stop everything we're doing for an entire week and focus our attention crying out to this God. We will have every excuse and even legitimate reasons why we cannot join the rest of God's people to pray. But if thirsting after God is our most important priority, it will move us to be with those who have the same priority. And so, as we open up the first five verses, we'll be asking questions. And the first question I'd like us to ask is, what does it mean to thirst for God? What does it mean to thirst for God? Verse 1, O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh thirsts for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Psalm 63 allows us to, to peep into the heart of this man, David. This man after God's own heart. The, the psalm helps us to see what it is we mean when we say thirsting for God. Or what should come to our minds when we speak of thirsting for God. And from the opening verses we see that to thirst after God means to have an intimate personal relationship with him. Thirsting for God means you have an intimate, personal relationship with God. And the psalmist in verse 1, he begins by using personal possessive pronouns. And he says, oh Lord, you are my God. David knew God in an intimate, personal way. And he's speaking to God who is already his God. He is in a state of grace. He is in this relationship with God. And he thirsts for this God. And this thirst for God is one of the gracious effects of the true work of grace in a soul. And David, right at the beginning, he says, 
Oh God, you are my God. He's not saying you are a God who's distant, you are a God who's far, exalted, high in the heavens, and no one can reach you, but he's able to say that that is true of you, but also something that is true of you is that you, who is highly exalted, you are my God. When a child is born, that child will thirst or will long for the mother's milk. And that thirst for the mother's milk is one of the first signs of physical life in a child, in a baby. And this is similar when it's come to the spiritual life. Thirsting for God is one of the earliest signs of spiritual life. If you want to know if a person is truly saved, you need to see whether they, there is this desire, there is this longing, there is this thirst for God. Do they desire God? Do they thirst for God? Do they long for God? One of the Puritans puts it this way, and I quote, Observe how it is with a newborn baby. He thirsts by the power of an irresistible instinct after his mother's milk. The destined food and nourishment of the infant life. Just so it is with a heaven-born soul and with a newborn revived church, they thirst by the force of an irresistible spiritual instinct for God and his word. And if you want to know whether you are truly saved, search your innermost being and see whether this is true of you. Whether there is this Fasting for God. Unregenerate souls. There is nothing of such. There is nothing of this longing. Just as a, a, a baby that has no life. It's just a body. It doesn't matter how much it is enticed to, to, the, to the milk of the mother. It will not respond. Why? Because there is no life in that, that infant. So it is with unregenerate souls. They can come to church. They can participate in the rituals of the church activities. But that which shows as the first signs of spiritual life will not be there. This thirsting for God. But where, but whenever someone is brought into a state of grace, there is always this double thirst. A thirst for God and a desire for God's word. There is this 
thirst, this double thirst, desiring God and desiring God's word. But also see that to thirst after God means to have a growing desire of him. You have a growing desire for God. David proceeds, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh thirsts for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. David already knew this God. Already had this relationship with God. But he wanted more of this God. He wanted to know more of this God. He wanted to go deeper and deeper into his relationship with this God. He wanted to, to know more of this God and be satisfied by this God. There is one sense he was satisfied with his relationship with this God. But there was another sense in which he was not satisfied because he wanted to know more of this God. And the more he was satisfied in the fact that God is his God, it created a thirsting to know even more of this God. And the word translated... In the ESV, earnestly I seek you, is a word that was used to, dis to, to describe wild donkeys when they are looking for food. That there was this determination by these wild animals not to be distracted by anything else other than the food they were looking for. And the point we can draw is that to seek after God means you go after God with an intense and growing desire for this God, to know this God, to want this God. And here we see David saying, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. A.W. <clears throat> Tozer, in his devotional book, The Pursuit of God, writes, and I quote, Come near to the holy men and women of the past, and you'll soon feel the heat of their desire after God. They mourned for him, they prayed and wrestled and sought for him day and night, in season and out. And when they had found him, the finding was all sweeter for the longing. Rather, let me read that again. And when they found him, the finding was all the sweeter for the long seeking. The finding was all the sweeter for the long seeking. And what basically A.W. Toza is saying is that you see when you come across individuals 
Christians, there is this deep desire for God. They thirst for God. And they will pray, they would mourn, they would wrestle, they would seek after him day and night. And when they finally found him, it was all sweet, very sweet. And the search and the seeking and the thirsting was all the more worth the while. And we see that if we have a relationship with God, it will produce a growing desire for him. And this growing desire for him will cause us to desire to be closer to him, to desire to know him, and to desire to do that which he wants. But we live in a world full of pressures. And complacency is a deadly foe, a deadly enemy for all spiritual growth. Complacency. We fail to have this as a priority. We become complacent. And instead of seeking after God, we allow all the pressures of our lives to kill this growing desire for God. We must thirst for God. And to thirst for God, we reveal that there is more we need to know about God. Because God is an infinite being. We cannot exhaust him. And the more you seek him, the more you realize there's more you need to know about him. And the more you realize there's more to know about him, the more there'll be this growing desire to know this God. And you must not, we must not deceive ourselves in thinking that we've somehow reached a level of spiritual maturity where we can simply box ourselves and survive on uh, what we've known in the past and have no growing desire for God. Because that would be trouble for us. Because the less you spend in God's word, the, rather the less time you spend in God's word, it begins to cause you to lose appetite for God's word. And because you're losing appetite for God's word, you're actually destroying your work with God, your own spiritual life. David walked with God for years, but he still longed for more. He was thirsting for God. The second question I want us to ask, we've asked the first question, what does it mean to thirst for God? The second question we're asking is, what are the marks of this thirst? 
What are the marks of this thirst? What are the signs that this person is thirsting for God? Again, verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh fends for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. The psalmist, in verse 1, give us several accompaniments of the thirst of which he is speaking of. And the first thing in that verse is this aspect of agency. There's this agency in him. And it is captured in the words, earnestly I seek you. The psalmist is giving us this picture that until I find what I'm looking for, I will not be at rest. There is this agency within me to seek after that which I want, and that which I want is my God. Some translations have uh, the words, Early I will seek you, or early I seek you. And that's because it's, it's, it's uh, the most literal translation of what the psalmist is saying. The idea of the psalmist is that there must be agency. The break of day must begin with me seeking and thirsting for this God. It is something that must be done with the first opportunity we get to do it. It is not something that must be put for, for another day or for another time or for another hour. No, it is something that must be done. It cannot be delayed. It cannot be put aside. It must not be put aside. Because there is this thirsting for God. There's this agency that the psalmist is painting for us in those verses. It's like a person who is suffering from a strong thirst for water cannot be placated or Put us, he cannot put aside that desire. Imagine with this heat as you are working in the, in the heat of the day. And you are exhausted. You've spent your energies and, and you want to quench your thirst. That strong desire for water in you will not be put away by anything that will come along your way because you know that that's not what you want at that moment. No matter how legitimate those things might be, that's not what you want. What you want is water to quench your thirst after spending your energies in the heat of the day 
toiling away. And even if someone's told you, no, forget about water for now, I mean, we can do it. You know that if you continue, you may die. And so you quench your thirst. And this is what the psalmist is saying. There's this agency about God. This agency about this thirst for God. And he's saying, it is within me. It has gotten hold of me. And I can do no other but first to attend to this. And the first opportunity I get to do it, I will surely do it. Say, I earnestly seek you. But it's not just the agency that he brings as a mark. There's also clarity. There's clarity about what he's thirsting for. The psalmist is not vague in his longing. He's not unclear in what he's looking or desiring. He desires spiritual delights. He said, oh God, you are my God. Endlessly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh thirsts for you. It's very clear. Lord, this is what is my delight. This is what I'm longing for. Remember the context. David is running away from his son Absalom. And he was in the desert of Judea. But he's not on the throne. He's left all his comforts in Jerusalem. And as he He's thirsting. He's not thirsting for the comforts that come with being a king of Israel. He's not thirsting for his possession, his riches, his treasures. He's not thirsting for the, 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 the sleep that his, his palace would offer. He's very clear. And as he flees from Absalom, He's left his possessions behind. He's left his wives behind. And he's saying, I know all these things are true, O oh God. I would like to go back. I long for my wives. I long for my palace. But this is what I desire. I'm longing for you. I thirst for you. And what you see, that the vacuum that would have been created at this time in the life of David because of the rebellion of his son Absalom, that wasn't what he was praying for. 
he was praying that God would quench his longing for God. One of the examples that one can think of and put himself in order to appreciate what David is going through and what would have probably longed for is the example that could come to mind is imagine you are a minister. I almost mentioned a minister was fired, but imagine you are a minister and maybe you've even gone for a, a conference or a meeting in another town and then all of a sudden you are fired. There's no ministerial car, no one to open for you, no driver. And then, if let's say you're in Livingstone, you have to make your way back into Lusaka, wherever you're coming from, and you're forced to be on a bus. The comforts that your car would provide are not there. Even the sense of security that you, you feel you had because of being an, an official or an officer in the government, it's not there. Now, what is it at that moment you'll be asking for? To get even with whoever's fired you? The comforts of your ministerial position? This is similar. Now, David is a king. And he's running away. The commander of soldiers is running away. And the one who's caused a rebellion, it's his, his own son. But what, and the vacuum that has been created in his mind, rather in his life. And David realizes that while I may cry for all those comforts, my greatest desire is God. And he cries to God. And is clear in his request to God. It is God he wants. And he prays earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh thirsts for you. And he goes on to say, your love is better than life. What amazing statement from the man after God's own heart. And these marks that David gives us in Psalm 63 must be true of all of us. There must be this agency to seek and thirst for God. We must be willing to close ourselves and long and desire God. The pressures of life will always be there. The demands of life will always be there. 
But each day that goes by without you having your priorities in place, you are missing opportunities for your own spiritual growth. You are missing opportunity to be satisfied in God. And we must be clear in our thirsting for God. And there must be this agency to desire this God. The third question we're asking, what motivates this thirst for God? What motivates this thirst for God? And we see from verse 2 all the way to verse 5. Let's read from verse 1. O Lord, O, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. The psalmist analyzes his life. He looks at his life. He looks at his past. He looks at his present, and he looks at his future. And all this put together fuels his thirst for God. His past, his present, and his future, they stimulate him to thirst for God. And he, in verse 2, he recalls his own experience in the past. And he says, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. He looks in the past and he digs in his memory. He goes into his memory bank and, and brings out how God has dealt with him in the past. And David highlights to us that memory is a great gift from God, especially when we use it to facilitate us to recollect God's gracious acts in our lives. And he's able to look back and he says, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. He said, yes, I'm in this place today. And if I were to focus on my pressures today, 
I will fail to recollect what you've done for me in the past. And therefore, I may fail to rejoice in you. And he's able to gaze upon God and appreciate the beauty and the glory of God in his sanctuary. And the psalmist records, recollects the blessings he has known while worshipping his God. And he was able to say these were times of blessings when the Lord was with me and is captivated by the memories of God's dealings with him. And his soul is captivated in this dry land. He recollects the past. But also... He's motivated as he looks at his present circumstances. He, back in verse 1, he realizes that God is in control of all things. That even though he's away from his palace, away from his kingdom, God is still in control of all things. And God is still his God. He, he walks in the past. And he sees what God had done for him. And he now brings the past into his present. And he, he weighs his circumstances. He looks at what he's going through. And one thing that still remains constant. God is still his God. He's still in control. Even though the circumstances surrounding him may be different. God is still his God. And he, he, this fuels him to thirst for God. And then this helps him now to focus on the future prospects. He's looked at his past, he looks at his present, and he sees that there is still great hope for tomorrow. And this motivates him for his future prospects. And this is what he says in verse 3 to verse 5. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. The power and glory and the love of God it gives him assurance that his thirst is not in vain. His thirst is exci excited by the promises of the gracious and faithful God. 
and he trusts this God and he rests in the promises of God and he looks at the future and he sees there is great hope because even there his God will be there. He is not complacent but satisfied and his soul is at rest. Even in the middle of the calamity, even in the midst of such a rebellion, he finds rest and is satisfied in God. He had this inner peace, a calm soul, And he sees his state in his God and is satisfied. Up to this point, there is no hope or guarantee that he will, he will get his kingdom back. But he's still satisfied in God. David found satisfaction in God and he was satisfied. What should motivate us to thirst for this God is that we must be able to look at our past where God found us wallowing in sin and reached out for us and picked us up and washed us in the blood of Christ and made us his royal possession and given us a name and an inheritance in his kingdom. We must be able to look back in the past and see how God has come through for us on a number of occasions. And be able to use uh, our memory as we look at what God has done. And be able to say, if our, my God was able to come through for me, what is it that you failed to do today? If he reached out to me when there was no hope and he gave me hope, my present pressures cannot disturb my tomorrow. Because my God who was with me in the past, who is with me today, he will be with me tomorrow. This week is a week of prayer and fasting. And how does this psalm tie into this subject of prayer? The relevance of thirsting for God to the subject of prayer is similar to the relevance of anger and appetite for food or appetite in relation to eating. You need to experience a true and deep desire for God 
before you can be drawn into his presence to have communion with him. If you don't have a deep desire for God, you will see no need to draw near to God and commune with him, with God's people. A prayerless life or a prayerlessness Christianity is because of a lack of a desire for God. It's because you don't desire God. You have no appetite for God's word, no appetite for God, and therefore you have no desire to meet with God's people and together cry out in solidarity over many issues. Because there's no personal desire for God. And this often shows in our prayer lives this lack of desire for God. The more you feed on God's word, the more you desire him and the more you desire him, the more you want to commune with him. There is no mystical formula for knowing an increasing thirst for God. It is read your Bible, pray every day. There's no mystical formula. It's read your Bible. Pray every day. As you grow, grow, grow. That's a formula that the scriptures give us. There's no other formula. And one of the sad realities is that it's our prayer meetings are the least attended meetings in this church. Bible studies will be there. Seminars will be there. When it comes to prayer meetings, it's, it's, it's an optional in our lives. And sometimes even here when you're in, when you're in, a, in a home group, for instance, and someone will even say, oh, today is just a prayer meeting. As if it's not important. Oh, I didn't prepare myself, so we just have a prayer meeting. This is a clear sign that at, at our personal lives, at, at individual levels, there's no thirsting for God. And therefore, at a corporate level as a church, we are seeing the effects of what's happening at individual levels. May we long to meet with God this week as individuals, but also as God's people. May we put aside our meetings for the evenings as important as they are, so that we may show one another 
But prayer and fasting is important in our lives. Because there's this thirsting for God. And one way to show that I'm thirsting for God is I'll pray to this God. Even if all is well, I'll still pray to this God. When there's pressures in my life, I'll still pray to this God. When the future is uncertain, I will still pray and pray and pray to this God. Because prayer, it's me talking to my Father in heaven as I read his word and I speak back to God his own word. And as I speak, and I speak back his own, to God his words, he will respond to his words. And you answer because I'm simply speaking back his word to my God. When we have right priorities, and if thirsting for God is the most important priority in our lives, we will create time for it. I often challenge, especially young, young people, maybe those who are either starting their, their jobs, their careers, they've just begun work, or they've just started college or university. One of the things they always tell you is, no, I mean, school is busy. And yes, that's true. School is busy, I've no time for this, I've no time for that. And you push them and push them and sometimes you challenge them, they'll give you all good reasons. How that they can't find time to be at church, at home groups, they can't find time to have their own devotions. And when I ask them about the issue of priorities, it becomes clear that at this point in their lives, God is not a priority. And it's soon sure when they get into a relationship. I mean, the school demands are still there, but all of a sudden they find time to visit their girlfriends. They find time to go to Manda Hill and take selfies as they eat ice cream. And then you begin to wonder, but have you finished school? No. Is school still busy? Yes. What is very clear? It's priorities. A girlfriend is more important. So I will create time. But if God is not important for now, so he must understand I'm in school. Priorities, godly priorities will help you to navigate through the pressures of life. And I hope as we truly reflect on this message, and sing in closing that great hymn, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. That will not, it will not just end in words. That will be willing to set aside all other priorities of our lives to be with this Jesus. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Why? Because Jesus is mine. 
May the Lord bless us this week as we gather together to pray. And may this be a start of great revival at our meetings, our prayer meetings. Because we are desiring and thirsting for God. Amen.